Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Wow, amen, amen. All right, well, you may be seated. Well, welcome to Young Adults, guys. My name is Matt, and uh, if you're new, what's up? Just a guy that works here, and happy to be here with you guys. Now, we have been, like Carly said, in the book of Romans for 34 weeks, studying all 430 verses, and uh, today we're picking back up where we left off last week. We did Romans 13, 1 through 7. We're doing 8 through 14 today. So grab your Bibles, friends, and let's go to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Now, uh, for the love of our great and awesome God, can, tell me, can someone tell me what the theme of Romans is? The righteousness of God. Yes, I love it. All right. Righteousness is a word that's of utmost importance, right? And it's one of the things that we're going to talk about today and we've been talking about for 34 weeks because that is what Paul hammers in each and every single week for us to know, right? To be in a right relationship with God and to be in a right relationship with others. And so um, Romans chapter 13, verses uh, 8 through 14 kind of begins to talk about that again. Now, before we hop into where I want to go today, I'm going to give you a question to turn and discuss. Like always, here's our question. Maybe we have a slide for it. Maybe we don't. But here's the question. Share a story um, where you went out of your way to help somebody. I guess it's not a question, more of an activity. Turn to a neighbor, share a story of when you went out of your way to help somebody, all right? You guys got one minute, ready, set, go. So I got a story, I got a story, and uh, if you've been in my youth group, you heard the story, and so I'm going to do this as a condensed version for my friends here who haven't heard the story, so we'll do the story in like 90 seconds. All right, so first job, right, right, I was in high school, ninth grade, I worked at a liquor store. Obviously, I was super popular in high school. Moving forward, I was a box boy. My my responsibility was stocking alcohol and helping my friends buy it, and um, and so uh, first job, and uh, it was actually at a liquor store. It used to be called Eddie's Liquor. I don't know what it's called now. I think it's called Quest Liquor now. I don't know. It's, uh, it's like a mile away, and uh, one day, my buddy Danny's like, hey, he's the boss. He goes, hey, grab us some Subway. Here's 20 bucks, whatever, and back in the day, $20 could have fed two people. Now, it feeds like half. It feeds a child, but anyways, um, so uh, I get Subway, order our food, and as I'm headed to Subway, I realize that as I look out the window of my car that there's an elderly gentleman that's sitting uh, in front of Domino's, laying on the gr- ground with a pizza box on him with his eyes open, thinking, this is an odd sight. <laughs> on my way back, he's still on the ground. I'll see what's going on. So he's, not, he's still laying on the ground, same spot 10 minutes later. Jump out of my car and run over to him, and I'm like, hey, dude, what, what's up? And he starts slurring his words, and I'm like, Okay, like I didn't see him in the liquor store. He didn't seem like he's had tons of alcohol. So, like, what's going on here, right? And uh, eventually, I asked him if he's diabetic. And I was in ninth grade health health class, and I learned about this thing called diabetic shock. And when people get when they're really low or really high, but normally really low blood sugar, it appears that they can be drunk and they enter into something called diabetic shock. And it could be they can develop seizures, and it could eventually be life threatening. And so, I'm thinking the guy's about to die. And so, 16 year old Matt thought that um, I should put the guy in my car and drive him home because that was a better idea than calling 911. Friends, that's not a better idea, all right? Because can you imagine if the guy died in my car? Like, this would be such a different story. But anyways, uh, that didn't happen. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm flooring, going through red lights because I think I'm a police officer. I'm getting the guy to, you know, to his house, and he lives across, uh, actually, there's a church right over here called Cottonwood. He lives in an apartment complex right behind Catella Deli. And I run upstairs to this apartment. I'm knocking on the door. His wife comes down, gives him his insulin, all is well, even got a free piece of pizza. 
Awesome day, right? And I, I left that day really with one question that would forever change the way in which we're going to see, or at least the way that I see, the scripture verse that we're going to go through to today. And here's the question that I learned that day um, when I was in, I guess I was in 10th grade, not 9th grade. Uh, the question was, when does God expect me, when does God expect me to take responsibility for the needs of other people, right? Now, I'm going to be upfront and honest with you. Uh, this is a challenging message today, at least the front half of it is, because um, I am going to be preaching something that I don't think I'm uh, doing a good job, pra- good job practicing, you know? And as a pastor, that's a weird place to be, right? When we go to God's Word and I have to come up here and tell you guys to do something that I'm not doing, uh, you know, an A-plus job at doing, right? Other than the story I just shared, I think I don't really have any good story or good reference to see this is how I've applied God's Word to my world. This is how I've turned over a new leaf. Follow me as I follow God into the unknown. I guess all I have for you guys tonight is a confession. I'm not doing too good in this area, and uh, a commitment to do better. And so this last week, I was uh, doing some Bible studies, and I came across some different scriptures that just hit me a little bit differently, and just reminded me, like, how much I suck. You ever read the Bible, and you just go, like, I'm trash, dude. I, like, I, like, how do I get married? How do I have a job? Like, like, why is God moving in my life, right? Like, they kind of had one of these moments this last week, and the scripture that we're going to be journeying through today, this text is really no different. What I've learned over the years is often the Word of God can get really close up in your character and on your soul level and really reveal to you who you are. Right? Like, I don't often read the Ten Commandments and go like, oh, I'm doing real good, you know? Like, I feel really good about myself right now. Uh, I go kind of like, oh. And then, you know, as I start getting towards the ones about, like, adultery and murder, I've never done, you know, any of that type of stuff. And so I start feeling a little bit better. And then I get to, like, Matthew chapter 5, which is where I did my studying this last week, um, just personal studying. And uh, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says something like, if you have hatred in your heart against somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. And you go like, oh, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing so good, right? Or there's this verse in the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, where it says this. But I tell you, anyone that who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like, oh, like, uh, uh, like really, God? Like, like that, that, those times I looked at pornography back when I was younger, like, 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 like in your eyes, I've, I've, I've stepped out on my wife? Like, okay, I, don't, I feel like I'm, I'm not doing so hot anymore, you know? Like, I realize, right, that I read these types of verses, and I'm... And I say this often, right? Like, I realize that I'm not a mistaker who needs a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance. I'm a sinner who desperately needs a good Savior, right? I realize I'm the type of guy that, like, tries to act like I'm asleep when my daughter's crying so my wife can deal with it, you know? Because, like, I'm too self-absorbed, right? I'm, I'm, I'm important, right? And she needs to deal with whatever it is, right? I feel like, you know, like, like, I'm just not that good of a guy, you know? Every time I look into the scriptures and the words of Jesus, I'm, I'm just reminded and confronted with the depravity of my own heart and my own desires, and made more aware of my true self. Now, look, your true self is drastically different than a culture that wants you to be true to yourself, right? See, culture wants you to be true to yourself, meaning follow all of those desires in your little heart. Scripture confronts you with your true self, not to follow your desires in your heart, but to kill the desires in your heart, and then to ask God for a new heart that longs and yearns and desires and wants what his heart wants, right? Billy, uh, Billy Graham, the famous... Um, I guess, 21st century preacher and evangelist says this, we're suffering mankind from the only disease in the world. Our basic problem isn't a race problem. Our basic problem isn't a poverty problem. Our basic problem isn't a war problem. Our basic problem is a heart problem. So here's what this brings us today. Our, uh, our problem of sin isn't the disaster of a world around us, but rather the disaster of a world within us, within our hearts, Right? Now, our hearts, right? What is it, right? Um, is it an emoji? What is it, right? Our heart is often confused with emotions in the Bible, but biblically, the heart is the center of one's being, right? It's where your desires, your intellect, your emotions, that they all, let's say, they intersect. And so Jesus, if you read the pages of Scripture and you read the words of Jesus, 
he spends so much time talking about our hearts because what we value in our hearts sets the course of how we're going to live our life, um, how we're going to spend our money, how we're going to form, how we're going to fill relationships, how you and I are going to make decisions. And so this is why the conditions of our hearts are of utmost importance to Jesus Christ. And so you're probably thinking, okay, we've done like two pages of notes. So where's Matt going with all of this, right? Why is he spending so much time talking about his, his damaged heart, right? And that's because today I'm going to tell you something to, to do that my heart really doesn't really want to do, right? Which makes it that, all that more important that I personally start practicing this way of Jesus in my life. So what's the specific teaching? What's the specific way of Jesus that we're talking about today? It's loving people sacrificially. That's what we're going to be talking about, loving people sacrificially. That's what Paul's going to teach us about. That's where we're going to be heading in God's word today. And I think you could probably agree with me, whether you're a believer or not, that love probably is the greatest need in the world today, right? And when Paul wrote, the, uh, wrote this letter to the book, the book of Romans to the Romans in antiquity 200 decades ago, it was probably the most lacking thing in the entire Roman Empire at the time, right? Under the subjugation of a military machine, and even under an evil emperor named Nero, who we learned about last week, uh, they needed to learn how to love, what love was like, and to display love amidst the pressure and opposition in the society in which they lived in, which is the society we live in today. And so with that really as the framework in the back of your mind, I want you to go with me in God's word, the book of Romans chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 8. Um, we're going to be skipping around. It says this, owe no one anything. I wish we had more time to talk about that specific verse, but I, I promise to do all of the remaining part of verse 13. So let me quickly tell you here, this is not like, if you know who Dave Ramsey is, he's like, he's like, don't, like he doesn't believe in credit cards and stuff like that. That's not necessarily what's being talked about. Oh, no one anything. This, there is a biblical um, commandment that like, you know, don't enslave yourself to debt um, and things along those lines. That's not necessarily what's being talked about here. Context next, it gives us the next verse. Except to love. I want you to highlight in your Bible, you have the ESV version, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I want to pause. I want to point out something really quick. Um, that to love is an infinitive verb. And so, you know, I've been a youth pastor for a while, and if I was teaching this to junior high, I would say, like, you're supposed to love, like, you know, Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond, because the word infinitive can be equated with the word infinity, right? And so it's forever, it's enduring, it's continuing. I want you to think of that reality. Think of Buzz Lightyear here, all right? Verse 9 says this, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase before, love your neighbor as yourself. Perfect. Put your hands down. All right. So you may not know this. I hope you do because I've said this um, often at young adults that the Ten Commandments can actually be divided in half. The first five deal with our vertical relationship with God, right? Uh, no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mother and your father. It actually has stuff to do with your vertical relationship with your God or with God. The next five are actually about our, our horizontal relationships with other image bearers, other people. Uh, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet something that belongs to your neighbor and don't lie. And so when Jesus was asked, we're going to jump into the book of Luke in a moment. Um, what's the greatest commandment? How can you boil down what was in the Old Testament 625 laws, take those into 10, the famous 10 commandments, and then how could, you, how could you boil that down to one? Jesus goes, look, I can't, but here's what I can do. I can take the first five, it's actually the first four and the next six, but um, the first five, and I can say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then I can take the next and say, love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what he does. He says, if you can prioritize your vertical relationship, you'll learn to care about your horizontal relationships equally. 
And so all of that really brings us to a moment in Jesus' life in a famous parable in which Jesus told many, many years ago that I believe Paul actually had in mind when he penned the book of Romans chapter 13, at least a handful of verses that we're going to be covering tonight. Now, for our friends here who are new to the Jesus thing, welcome and church and all that, um, let me tell you what a parable is. A parable is a story Jesus spontaneously told as he looked at an audience just like this that was fictitious in nature. It was fake, but it was designed to communicate truth. And in it, he would teach us about heaven or hell, about sin, salvation, about who the character of God is, things along those lines, right? In other words, it was a uh, earthly story designed to communicate heavenly truth. And Jesus was the master storyteller. Um, he was phenomenal at it. And with that, I want to just give us um, some of the surrounding context of Luke chapter 10. It's most famously called the parable of the good Samaritan. Chances are you've heard, um, you've heard it. It's one of the most famous stories really in the entire world. Um, in fact, the idea of the good Samaritan law actually comes from this parable. Now, um, we don't have time to go through the whole parable, but like I said, let me give you some of the surrounding theological context here um, and just some of the surrounding verses. Uh, if you have your Bibles, quickly go, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If not, it's going to be on the thing we call the Sky Bible. All right, it says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law. Who's an expert in the law? A lawyer. Who is anyone trying to be a lawyer here? I apologize. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's a lawyer who's an expert in the Jewish Mosaic law, Mo- Mosaic Moses, right? This dude should have been real good with the Ten Commandments, right? And uh, he's not the type of lawyer that, you know, the court lawyers that we have today, because notice that his question is not dealing with the Roman judicial system or even uh, Israel's judicial system. Rather, it's dealing with theology and it's with eschatology, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eschatology is about what happens to the soul, end times, book of Revelation, all that, all that fun stuff, right? Now, um, Jesus, being Jesus, knew that this was a test, and this man really had a question really behind his question, right? His question really wasn't like, all right, like, how can I get into heaven, right? There was another question behind there. And so Jesus, knowing this, asked another question to extract his question. You ever, uh, you ever been around little kids, and they continue to just ask the question, why? Like, or like, hey, we're going here for lunch. Like, why? Well, because I'm poor. And it's whatever. Like, well, you know, what are the reasons you give? And they're like, but why? Like, and why? And why? Well, little did you know, they're being little philosophers. This is called the Socratic method. It's answering a question with a question. It's annoying, but it works. All right. Verse 26 says this. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it, Jesus said. Uh, modern day interpretation is like, all right, well, you're supposed to be uh, one of those lawyer dudes, right? And uh, what do you think the Bible says regarding the topic that you've asked? And so verse 27, the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer answers like any good Jew would, right? Like the best Jew, right? And he quotes something called the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six. And the Shema is, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And uh, this was actually probably the most... Um, uh, memorized part of scripture in Judaism even today. Every little boy, every little girl growing up would hear mom and dad and, and rabbi repeat these words, and mom and dad would work hard not to have their, their kid's first uh, syntax or, 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 or sentence be mom, dad, or baba. Um, it would be this. They would try to get them to quote the book of Deuteronomy, to know it inside and out, specifically this, this verse in this chapter, right? And so uh, Jesus says this in verse 28. You've answered correctly. It's where the Greek word orthos, right and proper, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So with a smile on his face, Jesus agrees with the man's response. But I want you to notice with me that he forces kind of the question into a practical realm and says, do this to the letter and you will live. In other words, loving God with the totality of one's being and loving one neighbor as oneself, let's be real, is an impossible task that you're never going to be actually able to keep. And so Jesus is just smiling. 
do exactly what you said, and you'll go to heaven. The lawyer's like, you tricked me. Okay, um, he's feeling a little bit uncomfortable. So verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So with the realization that he's not fulfilling, right, this two-folded commandment perfectly, let's say, he comes up with this question to excuse himself from what love really asks and requires of us. We don't want to justify him, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that's the real question, right? Give me an address, a latitude and a longitude, a geographical location. Let me find his house on Zillow. Whatever it is, I want to do no more or no less. I want the bare minimum that God asks of me. And it was here as I read the story and I realized I am a, a lot like this man that I don't like in the Bible. Because the real question this man is asking is what are the minimum requirements I can do to make God and me okay? How can I still give God what God asks in a way that doesn't inconvenience or burden me, right? And let's be real, you've asked that before. I've asked that before, maybe not verbally, never in your prayer time, like, okay, God, what's the bare minimum I can give you today? That would be awesome, right? You've never asked that, but like in your subconscious heart of hearts, let's be real, that's how most of us live out our faith, right? Right, what percentage of our, of our incomes can we give yet still consider ourselves generous? We don't actually have to stop buying the $5 coffee at Starbucks or whatever, but like we can give, you know, 10 bucks here and $20 there and still feel like I'm generous. What lines and boundaries can I cross with my girlfriend or boyfriend and still be in a blessable relationship, right? What religious thing can I check off my list this week and said, I went to young adults, I went to that small group, I read my Bible once, I prayed for five minutes in the car, I sang worship songs in the shower, whatever it was, what religious thing can I do this week? to check off my good deed and my religious duty, right? And look, these are fundamentally the wrong questions. They don't reveal a relationship. They reveal a transactional type of relationship. See, I don't believe this man was a follower of Jesus, and that's the reason that he asked the questions in the way in which he did. I think a major difference between um, followers in the ancient world, they would ask things like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And many followers today, what can I still do and inherit eternal life? It's fundamentally different. And so back to our story with everyone's favorite type of person to argue with, the lawyer, Jesus, he doesn't answer the question. And I love that. Rather, he leads, it leads Jesus into a parable where he works to redefine neighbor and bring a new understanding of loving your neighbor as yourself. And we don't, we don't have time to jump into Luke chapter 10, but if you have your Bibles and you want to do a Bible study this next week, then I encourage you to study the parable of the Good Samaritan. But there are two things that I think we can glean from the story that will develop some context for what Paul wants us to know. Number one, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus generalizes neighbor. He literally goes, anyone in need that's around you and you have the resources to meet, including your enemies, you are to love. Now, we've thrown around different definitions of love here at Young Adults. Love is to will the good of another even at great cost to oneself, Right? But there's a maybe more important definition of love that I would like for you to memorize. It's love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person to bring that person into a right relationship with God. That's love's objectivity. It's its purpose. If we can bring people into a proper and right relationship with a vertical God, that will solve all horizontal issues that we have here on earth, right? That's kind of one of the things I talked about in the dating series. Look, if your heart can get lost in God and you're strong in your vertical relationship, I promise you, you're not going to make your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife God. You're not going to try to ask of them things that they cannot deliver because you're getting the things that you actually need. It is your vertical relationship that's most important. Number, uh, number two is Jesus identifies neighbor here. It's literally the person, right, that you walk by or the families that live onto your right or, or, or your left. But I also want to point out something here. Jesus works hard not to just keep us from theory because, let's say, the people of the world, but rather the practical, the people in whom you live by. So I'll ask the question in a different way. What if in... This story, what if Romans chapter 13, when it says love your neighbor, what if Jesus 
meant your literal neighbor, your geographical neighbor. He said, love your literal next door neighbor as you love yourself. Let me just ask you a question. How are you, how are you doing at that? So I gave a similar sermon to this. I gave the, the actual sermon uh, to this in, in Maine a while back. And I had, um, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people um, ask that question. And I had them do an activity with me, which was, do you even know the names of the people that live around you? What was something that you did that demonstrated that you care for them and that you followed Jesus in the last year, in the last 10 years, whatever it was, right? And it wasn't to make, it was to make us feel like trash. It wasn't to make us feel guilty, to be honest. You're like, what are we doing, right? So what about for you, right? What if Jesus actually meant love your literal neighbor as yourself? How are we doing at that, right? It is in that spirit that I want to keep in the back of your mind, and maybe that question, where Paul now kind of takes a change, in a, a thematical change in his text, um, where it's in really that spirit of love that he wants us to know that you are to love your neighbor. If God is going to hold you and I accountable to anything, it's to love your neighbor as yourself after your vertical relationship. God, love, love the Lord your God, love your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the priority of your life. All 625 commandments and the 10 greatest commandments all brought down to one commandment. That's what I want you to know. That it is that reality that that's what we're supposed to do in juxtaposition to the reality that God is also coming back. That there is going to be a moment where God cracks the sky open once again. And he's, no, he's not going to come as a baby like he did during Christmas, but rather as a coming king where the, where the Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is actually a daunting reality for people who are not followers of Jesus. Every knee will bow. The illustration that I often think of here is like, for those of you guys that lift, if you've ever like squatted too much weight and your like back buckles and your knees bend under the weight, the word glory in scripture in, in the original Hebrew, has a connotation with weightiness, that there is a, a glory, a, a weight to God's presence. And followers of Jesus will bow because their king is here. But people who, when Jesus comes back, are not followers will bow and be contorted downward in, the, in his presence because of his glory, of his might, of his strength, of his power, that they're literally face downward in his presence and can't look upward. That's a crazy reality to think of, Right? And it is that reality that he wants to keep in our minds, that that is what should keep us in, in walking in a right relationship with God. And so he switches his analogy here. He's going to use three or four more analogies. The next analogy he uses is, you, all, you and I are to love other people like we love ourselves, knowing that there's a responsibility in our lives because Christ is coming back. And so don't be asleep at the will. In other words, he uses a sleepwalking analogy here. So in the book of Romans chapter 13, verse 11, it says this. Besides this, you know that, I want you to highlight the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So I want you uh, maybe to think of it this way, to make it make sense for us. Um, some people talk in their sleep. In fact, raise your hand if you talk in your sleep. I'm sure you said some wild things. Uh, my wife also talks in her sleep. Uh, I know when she's having nightmares because she screams, um, and her nightmares are like, like, she goes like this, she goes, ah, ah. And so sometimes if I'm mad at her, I'll just be like, that sucks. Uh, no, I'm playing. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, that sucks. Uh, no, but she's just like, ah. And it's like, I'm like, what? you know those dreams where like you're trying to scream and you're like, you're like ah. that's what it sounds like. Anyways, uh, or uh, other people walk in their sleep. Raise your hand if you've ever like, like straight up like went to AMP or something crazy. All right, cool. Um, and then you can even think in your sleep, right? Because that's what dreams are, right? Your brain being active, right? Paul's insight here and his encouragement is not to be the kind of Christian and label only who does tons of religious things, I want you to listen, but isn't awake and active in their faith. Here's what this may look like in some of the people in the room here tonight, or at least people you can may identify in your life. This is probably someone who attends church more frequently than 
the person maybe next to them. And they're involved in tons of ministries here at this church or another church. Young adults, junior high, high school, main campus, kids, women's group, whatever, right? They're involved. And you would think that because they're so involved and, and they say they read their Bibles, that it, they're developing a, a, a deeper humility and love for other people. But rather, all that's happening in this individual's heart is they're just getting harder, and they're becoming more prideful and haughty, and they're growing a sense of resentment, and they truly believe now that they're better than their neighbor, better than the people that are around them. This is somebody who is, in, in, in Paul's analogy here, not actively walking with God. They're asleep in their faith, Right? And it's like they're sleepwalking through their faith. They're going through the motions, but real character development is not happening. And I wish we had time. Maybe I can do a series or a, a different night on this, but there's a huge difference between moral formation and spiritual formation. Moral formation is about becoming, doing the right thing. Spiritual formation is about loving what God loves and allowing his heart to change you. People who are asleep at the wheel feel like they're doing the right things, and then they feel like God owes them a debt because of their moral behavior, how much they're serving, how much they're tithing, how much they're X, Y, or Z. You're in a terrible place if you ever believe God owes you something. This church owes you something. A church owes you something. Rather than a sense of humility that, God, you have interrupted my life for the better, you have changed it, which is the next thing he talks about. Because the next thing I want to point out is the word time that I asked you to underline or highlight. In the Greek word, in the, in the Greek uh, text, there is two basic words for time. The first is chronos, simple, get chronology or chronological sequence of events. And then the next one is kairos, which is actually a divinely appointed time in human history, in chronos. Uh, kairos is a, described a time where um, God's about to break through. God's about to do something uh, miraculous in your life, in the life of a friend, something along these lines. This is the word that actually Paul uses in this verse. He's saying at any, let's say, chronological moment, God can specifically create a kairos moment, a moment in which he interrupts your everyday existence to do something incredible, to bring you forward in faith, to give you new revelation, to infuse your heart with a deeper level of passion. A kairos moment can really change, your, can interrupt your life and change everything. And what Paul is saying is you don't want to be asleep in moments like that. You don't want to miss moments where God is divinely orchestrating a specific event. You have to be awake. You have to be watching for these moments and be willing for God to interrupt your life to do something incredible and to lead you somewhere specifically. And Paul is saying, look, if you are asleep at the wheel and you are spreading yourself thin by volunteering or spreading yourself thin by whatever it may be, what is most important is not necessarily your volunteering, but it's your personal relationship, your devotion with God. And it's not necessary. Let me say it this way, and I'll, I'll give some context in a moment. What Paul wants to keep us from is, is, is this idea where you can be a sleepy Christian in some sense of the way. He wants you to be active in your faith, not passive in your faith. Yes, there is an active form of faith where you're volunteering and stuff like that, where you're being um, a participant, not a spectator. But the same is when it comes to God's word. Don't overextend yourself. He talks about that in a second. Go with me to verse 12 through 14. This is this. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us, I want you to see the imagery here. Let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not sexual immorality. Sensuality. Do you guys know what the word sensuality means? The pursuit of happiness. Like literally the American dream. It means to live a life that is orientated towards your senses. Not in quarreling or jealousy, but notice this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a few more illustrations I want to point out here. The first illustration is in verse 14. He talks about taking off and putting on clothes. Right, when you get dressed every day, you dress appropriately to, number one, who you are, and number two, what is, what is before you that day, right? what you plan to do. 
Like, I would never um, get up in the morning and wear cowboy boots. You know why I wouldn't wear cowboy boots? Because I'm not a cowboy. The same reason you shouldn't wear cowboy boots. Um, just because you line dance. Okay, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. uh, it also doesn't, um, it doesn't suit my interest. You know why I would never wear a fedora? Because I don't want my wife to divorce me. No, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> same reason I would never wear a Lululemon. Uh, <laughs> um, it's just not who I am. It's not what I plan to be doing that day, right? Um, but there's also another analogy here, right? Um, before you put something on, something first must come off. In other words, let me say it this way. We must first cast off before we put something on. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my uh, favorite pastors from the 1800s, he says this, the rags of sin must come off before we put on the robe of Christ. There must be a taking away of the love of sin. There must be a renouncing of the practices and habits of sin, or else a man or woman cannot be a Christian. It will be an idle attempt to try and wear religion as a sort of celestial overall over the tops of old sins. I love that imagery where it's like, look, if, you're not a, if you don't experience spiritual regeneration, John chapter 3, where you have actually given your heart over to God and said, wreck it, <laughs> break my heart for what break, change me. If you're just trying to do the, out, the, things, the right things outwardly, the Bible calls you a whitewashed tomb. Think of, think of that, right? So I, I, did, I had the privilege of doing a funeral um, on Tuesday, family that goes to our church and um, uh, a guy that I care for. And I'm standing next to this casket, and uh, I realize that, uh, that this man's dad has passed away and, um, two weeks ago. And um, thinking about what that body would look like in that casket, even though the outside of this casket is beautiful. It's got scripture carved inside of it, big mahogany uh, uh, you know, case around him. And when the Bible calls people a whitewashed tomb, that's the image. But there are people, followers of, quote, Jesus, the Rome churches, and yet on the outside, it appears like everything is good. But on the inside, they're dead. And it's because they're doing the right things without actually becoming the right person. God is less interested in you doing the right things. He's more interested in you becoming the right person. Because if you can become the right person, he's less worried about what you're going to do, which is the same thing I'm concerned about as a parent. Like, my daughter's name is Noelle, and Look, the things that she's going to do when she gets older, I'm not that concerned about. What, she's going, what career she's going to choose, who she's going to marry. Because if I can instill her a sense of character, a love for God, if I can implant in her the character that God wants for her, I, I'm less concerned about what she's going to do. In other words, even as a parent, as, we, as, as my wife and I talk about what are we going to leave to her when we pass away, I'm less concerned about what I'm going to leave to her and more concerned about what I'm going to put in her. A character, a love for God. Those will be her compass, Right? And so this is the idea that he's talking about, that if we haven't actually ever given our hearts over to Christ, this whole Christian thing is going to be extraordinarily hard, and you're just going to get bitter, because you're not going to be able to do it in your own power. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to uh, go with me to verse 14 for a second. And uh, well, actually, before we get there, one other thought. I want you to notice also with me that Paul says something interesting. He says, the armor of light. Armor of light. It's very specific and very intentional. Not the jacket of life, not the tank top of light, not the suit or dress of light, but the armor of light. Why would he include that? It's a reminder for us as followers of Jesus that there is a battle for our soul. There is a battle for the souls of men and women around us. That There also is a, a war uh, going on for sin around us and even old habits and addictions within us. And so your question is, okay, what does it look like then? What does it look like for us to go to war and put on this armor? And he answers that in verse 14, but if you care to know and want to do a personal study on this, read the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We did a whole study on this where I did 14 weeks, I think, or so through the book of Ephesians. I think you can find it on our podcast where I did maybe two hours on just that, on that verse. But go with me to verse 14 for a second. It says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no, I want you to highlight the word provision. 
know what the word provision means? It means to provide or um, supply something for need. Make no supply for the flesh. The flesh we've talked about and defined in the book of Romans through our study of it. It's called the old man. It's the sinful old nature that we have. Now, as followers of Jesus, look, you may have been given a new nature, but you still have an old and fractured mind. This is why in the book of Romans chapter 12, four weeks ago, we learned, do not be, do, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can test and approve what God's pleasing and perfect will is, that it begins in your mind. That God is in the business of, it's called orthodoxy, that he is in the business of changing your mind to right thinking of the way of God, the way of others, and the way of yourself. And so um, do, not, do not offer yourselves to your flesh, it says, to gratify its desires. Let me quantify this and make this a little more applicable for you. We make a provision for the flesh when you wink at your sin and don't deal with it, when you think that you deserve a way of life or something. So he's saying be alert, be awake, and avoid situations where you might invite the old sinful ways and the old sinful habits into the new person in which you are. Like you may have been a new, you may not be a new creation in Christ, but still have a mind of someone who's addicted to porn. You may be a new creation in Christ, but have a mind of someone that's addicted to still a substance. Even an old way of thinking. Right? That, that was for me for most of my, even today, to be honest with you, my most Christian life is I still don't believe in myself. I still don't have a sense of confidence in what God's doing in my life and that I can stand on a stage and have the abilities that God has given me. Or, like I still believe that I'm the kid that was dumb or the kid that can't rise to the occasion or whatever it is, Right? That's why the Bible talks about setting our mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It talks about the transformation of our minds. And so he's saying, look, there is going to be, and Satan is going to be tossing things at you each and every single day and waking moment to try to tempt you to go back to the old way of life. That you, and your old way of life is the life before you were a Christian. And if you don't have an old way of life, that's, there's two things. Another means that you didn't, you didn't, there was never a moment of your life where you were far and separate from Christ. And that's a testimony. Like, my wife's testimony, I think, is so much more beautiful than mine. In church, we glorify my testimony, partying, getting, you know, being wild or whatever it is, and then there was this moment where I gave my life over, right? But my, I think my wife's testimony is so much more beautiful that she never ran away, that there was this saving power of God that was so alluring to her that she saw the filthiness of the world and thought that Jesus was more beautiful. That's a better story, right? And, and that's awesome if that's your story here, right? But what we're talking about and what Paul wants us to know is for each of us that have a story— there's going to be a pull towards the old way once again. And we need to be alert, be awake, like we did another series in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, um, be alert, be awake, be sober-minded, for your enemy roars around like a, a lion for seeking for someone in whom to devour, right? So there's going to be these, these pulls to the old way of life. And so let me just quantify this. If you can't moderate yourself in drinking and you're of age, stop drinking, stop going to bars, get new friends. That's what I had to do. Number two, if you struggle with lust, downgrade your phone. Uh, stop bringing it into your bedroom or bathroom. Make a rule that I'm never going to be on my phone alone. Or two, if you struggle with, or three, if you struggle with jealousy, constantly envious of other people's lifestyles, delete Instagram. I don't even know why people have Instagram. <laughs> it's just to look into the lives of other people and get a little bit jealous that their lives look a little bit better than yours, right? Here's the point, and I'm going to pray for you guys and get you guys in the groups to talk a little bit more about this. The point that Paul's trying to bring us here is this, is that the greatest battle in your life is not a culture war, it's a carnal war. The, I'm gonna say this again, it's important to hear this. The greatest battle for your faith is not a culture war, like often a lot of Christians do, and think that it is, right? Like this is why you see tons of Christians flocking to uh, highly conservative churches where their pastor stands on a stage and preaches that 
uh, uh, the conservative party is the one that God blesses and cha- you know, things like that. The greatest war is not a conservative war. It's a carnal war. It's against yourself, actually. Not a culture war, a carnal war with a sinful world around you and the sin that is within you. And that's what I want you guys to talk about in your guys' groups today. You ask me questions, it'll lead, you, lead your thoughts there. Let me pray for you guys, and then I'll get you guys in the groups for, let's say, 20 minutes. Lord, we thank you for today and for the reality that we can be made new in you. And uh, Lord, I know that... Uh, There are so many things in me that want to be pulled back to the old way of life, but it is the beauty of the gospel and the reminder of how good you are and your power that reminds me to continue to press forward. I'm also reminded, Lord God, that like I said earlier, that yeah, it's not the world around us that's really the problem, it's the world within us. It's not the culture war, it's a carnal war. It's with our old nature, it's with the sin God that's found within us. And so Lord, we ask that you would continue to make us new and help us love God what you love. Would you continue to mold and fashion our heart after you? We love you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.